Let's pray. Father, this doesn't get old. It never has. The unique privilege that is ours not only to read your very words in Scripture, but now to see those words return to the mother tongue, the spokenness of the Word of God. There's nothing like it, and I I thank you for the, the privilege and the priority that our church places on biblical preaching, and I ask that you would come now and enable me to faithfully serve a single phrase that we're really drawing out of Scripture. I pray that you would guide us into the truth and guard us from error as we uh, navigate uh, a handful of scriptures this morning. And I pray that we would see not only the, the truth of the reality that you hold and are the key of David, but we would see the utmost relevance of it. We don't seek to make the Bible relevant this morning. We seek to understand how this is already relevant to us. And if we don't see this, then we are irrelevant. So come now and do that work. In Jesus' name, amen. This time I will invite you to turn in your Bibles actually to Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. We will make our way back to Revelation chapter 3, but by way of Isaiah 22, because we want to know what's underneath Revelation chapter 3. Isaiah chapter 22, beginning in verse 15, is where we really need to head. If you're using one of our red Bibles, uh, the text begins on page 583 in the red Bibles, 583 in those Bibles underneath the seat in front of you. Uh, This is week two in our annual Advent preaching series. The series is entitled, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, an Advent study of Messianic prophecy in the Old and New Testament. And each of these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, culminating on Christmas Eve, we are considering different biblical titles that are given to Jesus and featured Uh, in the verses of this magnificent hymn, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Last week, we learned that Christ is the rod and the root of Jesse, as we considered Jesus Israel's promised Messiah. We made much of that reality. This week, our focus is on Christ as the key of David. The key of David. Now, once again, we're dealing with a verse from this hymn that's actually not only kind of buried in our hymnal, this verse is not in our hymnal. So you'd look in vain for it. So I wonder if we couldn't begin this week similarly to how we did last week. I'd like to sing the verse for us, and then I'll ask you to join me in the chorus as you're familiar with it. Does that sound good? O come, thou key of David, come. And open wide our heavenly home. 
Make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Rejoice, rejoice, Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Amen. According to those words, Jesus is the key of David. As we're going to see, this is the testimony of the Bible as well. So two questions follow. First, what does it mean that Jesus is the key of David? And second, why does it matter? Let's begin with the big idea today. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king, the legitimate heir to heaven's throne, and he alone grants access to the palace. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king, the legitimate heir to heaven's throne, and he alone grants access to the palace. Follow along with me, and I'd like to read Isaiah chapter 22, verses 15 to 25. Isaiah 22, 15 to 25. Thus says the Lord God of hosts, Come, go to this steward, to Shebna, who is over the household, and say to him, What have you to do here? And whom have you here that you have cut here out a tomb for yourself, you who cut out a tomb on the height and carve a dwelling for yourself in the rock? Behold, the Lord will hurl you away violently, O you strong man. He will seize firm hold on you and whirl you around and around and throw you like a ball into a wide land. There you shall die, and there shall your glory, your glorious chari- shall be your glorious chariots and you, your shame of your master's house. I will thrust you from your office and you will be pulled down from your station. In that day, I will call my servant Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, and I will clothe him with your robe, and I will bind your sash on him, and I will commit your authority to his hand. And he shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. And I will place on his shoulder the key of the house of David. He shall open, and none shall shut. And he shall shut, and none shall open. I will fasten him like a peg in a secure place, and he will become a throne of honor to his father's house. And they will hang on him the whole honor of his father's house, the offspring and issue, every small vessel from the cups to all the flagons. In that day, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg that was fastened in a secure place will give way. And it will be cut down and fall, and the load that was on it will be cut off, for the Lord has spoken. I I realize we just jumped hip deep into the Old Testament, probably not a a passage of Scripture that uh, you have a lot of familiarity with, nor have I up until this point. So allow me to help us to get our bearings a little bit here. Isaiah was a writing prophet who lived roughly 700 years before the birth 
of our Savior. And the two men featured in these readings, the two names are Shebna and Eliakim. Trust you heard those names. These two men are stewards underneath King Hezekiah in the southern kingdom of Judah. A steward in the nation of Israel, I take to be the rough equivalent to perhaps the Secretary of State with reference to the President in our nation. So Shebna and Eliakim were to Hezekiah what John Kerry is to President Obama. Is that fair? Now Shebna evidently has abused his power. Pride and vanity become his undoing. And the Lord prophesies through Isaiah that Shebna will be dramatically demoted. And actually, the prophecy of here in chapter 22 has come to pass by chapter 36 because these men have changed places by chapter 36. And Eliakim is to replace Shebna. And I want to show us here how Eliakim isn't simply a substitute steward, although he is. He's actually a shadow, a type of Jesus Christ, the Christ who is to come. Verse 20 calls Eliakim my servant. My servant, not just a steward. And that is a weighty, weighty title in the book of Isaiah, mainly reserved for Christ himself in the back half of Isaiah's prophecy. My servant. In verse 21, it says that Eliakim shall be a father to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Once again, it's a title that's applied to the Messiah in Isaiah chapter 9. It's a significant designation in the prophet Isaiah. Both terms, servant and father, are applied repeatedly to the Messiah throughout the prophecy of Isaiah. And then we come to verse 22. Verse 22, which says of Eliakim, I will place on his shoulder... The key of the house of David. He shall open and none shall shut. He shall shut and none shall open. Now, it may be mere symbol, but I I tend to take the position that this is possibly a literal key, one that actually determined access to the royal precinct of the king of Judah. And though its position on the shoulder may seem strange at first, and we put keys in our pocket or around our belt loop or something, Um, The position on the shoulder may seem strange at first glance until we realize that really what we're talking about is responsibility. The duty, the commission, the accountability of this man was that he alone could allow a person audience with the king. A weighty responsibility was falling on his shoulder. And it appears that this role proved too heavy even for Eliakim as it was for Shebna. I hope you can smell something coming. Or to mix our metaphors here in our house, we like to say every story whispers Jesus' name. Amen. Verses 24 and 25 go on to describe Eliakim's demise. Uh, Pastor Ryan Martin, who lives way out in Granite Falls, Minnesota, looked at these two men and observed that Shebna was destroyed by pride and vanity. Eliakim was destroyed through nepotism and pandering. So evidently, holding the key of the house of David is a substantial obligation. A task of such a magnitude that men like Shebna and Eliakim simply buckled under the burden of it all. I mean, who is equal to this task. 
And you need to know that the Bible is absolutely silent on the matter until we come to Revelation chapter 3 and verse 7. And you heard it read for you. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, the resurrected Christ says to John the Apostle, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write the words of the Holy One, who is the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. Now recall that the time between the writing of Isaiah and the writing of John in the book of Revelation, is roughly three-quarters of a millennium. That's a long time. For over 700 years, nobody is fit to bear this burden on their shoulder. But 2,000 years ago, in the city of David, Bethlehem, a baby was born. And the government would be placed upon his shoulder the genuine servant of Israel, the everlasting father, the true and better Eliakim, Jesus Christ, who holds alone, alone holds the key of David, and who alone is the key of David. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king, the legitimate heir to heaven's throne, And he alone grants access to the palace. Now, what does that mean in practical terms for us today? It means that Jesus is the only way to God. Not our good works. Not our self-help. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Confucius. Jesus the hymn writer tells us only Jesus can open wide our heavenly home, make safe the way that leads on high, and close the path to misery. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Jesus holds the key of David. And in the time that remains today, I'd like to take us on a practical tour of the Bible asking this question at each step. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Have you ever been asked that before? Would it be helpful to have an answer, a biblical answer for that question? I've got five reasons for us. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Well, because Jesus alone holds the key of David. For example, Jesus is the only Son of God. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus is the only Son of God. The Gospel of John repeatedly and uncompromisingly refers to Jesus, not just as the Son of God, but the only Son of God. John 1.14 tells us that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. The term for only son there in John 1.14 is the Greek word monogenes. Mono meaning one or only. And genes referring to like progeny. We talk about genealogies, births, monogenes. The one time in the, the Greek version of the Old Testament that this word appears is Judges 11.34 
and it refers unambiguously to an only child. Some of you are parents of an only child. Some of you are only children of a parent. And not that those of us with multiple children love our kids less, but isn't there something special about having an only child, of being the only child of your parents? Now, while it's true that if you know Jesus, you are also a child of God, it's important to remember that we come into the family of God by adoption, legal transaction. Jesus wasn't adopted by the Father. Jesus is the only son of the Father. New Testament scholar Andreas Kostenberger says, the idea here with this word isn't simply only begotten, but one of a kind. The only one of a kind son of God. And in this sense, Jesus Christ truly is an only child, if you get my drift. And it's this only child, this one of a kind child, who was born to die. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, same word, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Does that move you? It's designed to. Once we begin to get the sense of the magnitude of God's love for this sinful world, shakes its fist at him. For us to ask why Jesus is the only way is an incredible affront to God the Father. John 3.18 assures us, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because only Jesus holds the key of David. Jesus is the only Son of God. Second, why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus holds the key of David, and Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. 1 Timothy 2.5. 1 Timothy 2.5. The Apostle Paul writes, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. How many gods? One God. How many mediators? One mediator. We've said it many times in this church, and yet I make no apology for calling our attention to it again, especially in the season of Advent. A mediator is a third party. A third person who represents two parties locked in a conflict. In this case, the two embattled participants are a holy God and sinful men. J.I. Packer said it simply, God is opposed to man in his holiness and man is opposed to God in his sin. We have a stalemate here. So the work of a mediator is, if you like, to show the interests of each party to the other. Now, the only way in which the analogy breaks down in our case is that sinful men have not one single shred of interest 
not one solitary line of defense in and of themselves to commend themselves before a holy God. So the stunning thing about this mediator is that though holy, he assumed the likeness of sinful flesh. Though he himself committed no sin, he did indeed identify with sinners by taking on all of our weaknesses, all of our limitations. Though it's true that Jesus is the only Son of God, he is not a sort of aloof, spoiled, only child. That's not Jesus. In Christ, the divine Son became a man. He became a man so that he could become our mediator, representing our interests, humanity's interests, before a holy God. There is no other faith or philosophy in the history of the planet that teaches this, not even close. The holy God looks at Christ the man and sees a perfect, sinless humanity. Sinful men look at Christ and see God in the flesh in whom all the fullness of deity dwells. That's what it means for Jesus to be a mediator. One of my favorite English Puritans is, was a man named John Flavel. Flavel once wrote a book called The Fountain of Life, a display of Christ in his essential and mediatorial glory. Now, it's 42 sermons on point two of this sermon. Christ our mediator. Yeah, these guys were made of a different sort of... 556 pages on point two of this sermon. And in the dedication, John Flavel writes, Let me tell you, the whole world is not a theater large enough to show the glory of Christ upon or to unfold one half of the unsearchable riches that lie hid in him. These things will be far better understood in heaven than by such a stammering tongue and scribbling pen as mine. What shall I say of Christ? And then that doesn't keep him from 556 pages. (laughs) Why is Jesus the only way to God? Asked John Flavel. Jesus holds the key of David, making him the only, one and only mediator between God and men. Third, why is Jesus the only way to God? Because Jesus holds the key of David, and Jesus is the only name by which we may be saved. Jesus is the only name by which we may be saved. Now, do me a favor and adjust a word in your outline. It's my error. Change that may to must because that's the way Acts 4.12 reads. Must. The Bible says in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given among men by which we, not may, must be saved. Are you saved today? Do you know that you must be? You must be saved. Daryl Bach, New Testament scholar, comments, simply put, 
there's nowhere else to turn for salvation. Our sin deserves, deserves eternal conscious torment from a holy God. The work of Christ is necessary for salvation. There are no other bases for our rescue. And I want to say clearly that we have no scriptural foundation to imagine anything other than conscious faith is necessary in Jesus for salvation. Acts 4.12 speaks of his name. No other name. The implications for global missions among the unreached and unengaged are nothing short of staggering if we take Acts 4.12 seriously, which I believe we ought to. No other saviors. There's no other name. And they need to know his name. Four days ago, as the San Bernardino shooting unfolded, heroism was not in short supply. Perhaps you heard the story of Shannon Johnson and Denise Peraza. Shannon used his own body as a shield to protect his coworker, Denise, from the bullet spray that afternoon. Shannon died. Denise lived. And she said, quote, I will always remember his left arm wrapped around me, holding me close as possible next to him behind that chair. And amidst all the chaos, I'll always remember him saying these three words, I got you. I got you. Denise called Shannon a friend and a hero. Amen. Both fitting titles. CNN called Shannon Denise's savior. The word rattled me because I was working on this sermon. Denise got it right. Shannon was a friend. Lays down his life. No greater love as a friend of this. Even a hero. But we stop short of anything further out of reverence for Christ. We know this because Acts 4.12 says there is salvation. There's saving and no one else. Why? There's no other name given among men by which we may be saved and we must be saved. Are you saved today? Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because only Jesus holds the key of David. Jesus is the only name by which we must be saved. Fourth, why is Jesus the only way to God? Because only Jesus holds the key of David. Jesus is the only all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. Jesus is the only all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. In 2 Corinthians 3, we read of the veil of unbelief that lies over the hearts of so many Jews with reference to their Messiah. In Paul's day as well, it's true in ours. 2 Corinthians 3.14 says, For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil lies unlifted because 
only, there's our word, only through Christ it is taken away. How is the veil taken away? Only through Christ. And if you were to ask the Apostle Paul just specifically, how does that veil get lifted away through Christ? He would tell you it comes because there is a righteousness of God that has been manifested apart from the law to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he'd tell you that there is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ available for all who believe. Notice, there's only one way to God, but Jesus offers himself to how many? All. All who believe. Only through Christ. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice, an atoning sacrifice for sin to be received by faith. Romans 3, 21 to 25. Jesus is the only all-sufficient sacrifice for sin. John Owen once wrote, It is not easily admitted or received that we can no otherwise be cleansed from our sins, but by the sprinkling of that blood which was shed so long ago. And yet this and no other way doth the Scripture propose unto us to fancy that there is any cleansing from sin but by the blood of Christ is to overthrow the gospel. One of Owen's favorite phrases. Overthrow the gospel. Amen. This is the heart of the gospel. There's nothing else like it anywhere. Other churches might preach the gospel better than we do, but they cannot preach a better gospel. Amen? There is no better gospel. Do you believe this gospel? Are you turning from all your sin to all that God is for you in Christ? Why is Jesus the only way to God? It starts to sound like a silly question after a while because only Jesus holds the key of David. He's the only all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, only through Jesus. One final reason today. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because only Jesus holds the key of David. Jesus is the only master and Lord to whom all authority has been given. Jesus is the only, capital M, master, capital L, Lord, to whom all authority has been given. You may have put all my cards on the table here. You may have noticed a thread through this sermon. That little word, only. All five of these points represent a simple chasing of that word only through the pages of the New Testament. Nothing that any of you cannot do or are equipped to do with a concordance at your hand. In fact, I just did it with BibleGateway.com. I put the word only in there and just watched what it did. And four, five points stood up and cleared their throat. The final only is drawn from the epistle of Jude. Not often we get to go to Jude. Preached through Jude two weeks back in the spring of 2006. A while ago. Jude 4, we read of our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Our only master and Lord. 
Now note the trajectory of these points. Jesus is the only son, mediator, name, sacrifice, and now master and Lord. In Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. The Great Commission itself hangs entirely on this final issue. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Why? Because he's the only master and Lord. I don't know about you, but the longer I walk with Jesus, his words have force with me. They have power in my life. They keep me from sinning. And when they don't, I find myself crumbling in repentance at his feet. He's not just a savior, he's Lord. He's not just a sacrifice, he's master. The Great Commission isn't simply baptize, but it's teach them to observe everything I've commanded you, which means everything he's commanded us. Why? He's the only master and Lord. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Because only Jesus holds the key of David. He's the only master and Lord. At Christmas, we celebrate the birth of a king, the legitimate heir to heaven's throne, and he alone grants access to the palace. Why is Jesus the only way to God? Jesus holds the key of David. Jesus is the only son of God. Jesus is the only mediator between God and men. Jesus is the only name by which we may be saved, must be saved. Jesus is the only all-sufficient sacrifice for sin, and Jesus is the only Master and Lord to whom all authority in heaven and earth has been given. Next Sunday is Advent Week 3, and our focus will be Jesus the Dayspring. Come thou Dayspring. It's a prophecy, so far as I can tell, only found in the first chapter of Luke about Jesus as the light of the world. We'll pick it up then. Let's pray. Father in heaven, there is simplicity in the message you've given us. It it doesn't um, behoove us to be complex when we approach these matters. Our questions are simple and they are profound why is Jesus the only way to God and I pray that the piercing clear cut answers from scripture may not simply be persuasive to us but may they be delightful and beautiful and satisfying to us Lord we live in a world we live in a culture we live in a nation that does not, by and large, believe this. So I pray, Lord, that we would do what love does with the truth. Love doesn't just admit the truth. Love doesn't just assent to a knowledge of the truth. Love rejoices with the truth. And so we rejoice today in the words of this old hymn, O come, Thou key of David. Rejoice, rejoice. We rejoice in this. May that day be soon that you come.
In your name we pray. Amen.